Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I as a Christian believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash goddessgray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Today we're talking to Matthew DiStefano. He is an author, blogger, a longtime social worker, and one of the hosts of the Heretic Happy Hour, which you can catch me on November something. This, this interview will be coming out after it. So you can see my episode there. Um, hi, Matthew. Hi. Yes, November <laughs> something. Yes. November something. Yeah. Um, I am just really happy to continue inviting men onto the podcast because obviously women's voices and uh, voices of marginalized people are incredibly valuable to have in the conversation. But sort of paraphrasing from Peggy Ornstein, who wrote the book Boys and Sex. I do believe it's invaluable to keep reminding ourselves like what the, I guess, safest people in society are also going through internally because when white, cis, straight men are healthy, it can really trickle down from there and, and cause more health with all of us as a society. Would you agree with that sentiment? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're like, no, screw everybody else. No, I just want what's mine. <laughs> That's right. I'm selfish. Deal with it. <laughs> um, speaking of which, do you want to get started by, I just want to ask you if you know about this Harry Styles controversy, controversy wearing uh, dresses and stuff in the shoot. Uh, no, I, I, it was just one of those things on Twitter that said I didn't click on it though that's the only thing I know I was like uh, there's controversy about Harry Styles wearing a dress and I was like oh my god there's so much going on in the world like everyone who cares but I didn't read the article so I don't even know what's happening I just think it's pertinent to the opening that I just gave because it's another one of those things where I feel so um fortunate that not being a marginalized person and not being I was going to say not being a part of the LGBTQ community, but I have like had some realizations that I definitely am bisexual <laughs> now that I've sort of opened myself up to that. But regardless, I still wouldn't consider myself someone that has been really beaten down by a lot of these systemic issues and organizations that we have. So when you see someone that's in a position of societally this ultimate power, someone with fame and clouts, 
a white guy, someone that we perceive to be straight. I don't know what his sexuality is. Um, kind of breaking down those stereotypes and wearing a dress and just being open about that. I think it really helps open the door to these conversations. Unfortunately, the conversation has been very sticky and he's really being just slaughtered for it by the usual suspects. Candace Owens has her panties all in a twist about it. And Ben Shapiro has his panties in a twist about it. So what do you think of some of these gender scripts that you were given? I despise the gender norms because um, if you don't fall into them, you get ostracized in some way. And I know saying that as a guy, it's not going to be to the level of women or... um, persons of color uh, necessarily, but you still have to fit that mold. And if you don't, like I've been called all sorts of names because I am a little bit more feminine than what is supposed to be the alpha masculine male. Even though like I'm super athletic, I played sports and did all that. I don't present as, as a typical masculine white dude right? If that makes sense. I mean, I think you do, but (laughs) maybe not. (laughs) It it probably depends on, um, I guess, whatever your background is. I mean, or just your stereotype and your whatever culture you come from, whatever subculture you come from. Um, I just think like people are so unique and it's just so stifling that we'd want to put people in a box like that. Um, I'm of the belief that God is way more creative than people uh, would admit and 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 we are a very diverse unique representation of God and everyone is on a masculine feminine spectrum and and moves back and forth uh, for a bunch of different reasons biological experiential whatever and it's just unfair to any any time pigeonhole anyone like if if Harry Styles wants to wear a dress like like go for it I, I don't feel like I want to, but so what? That has nothing to do with the situation. Yeah, it, I agree. Everything is just so narrow, but it's funny because I know just in the conversation like this, I can always hear the dissenting comments coming in before they've come in because we've just been given a script as evangelicals and as Christians, and you know what you're supposed to say to dissent ideas like this like no men cannot wear a dress for the following three reasons that really don't have a strong theological basis also historically like men invented the high heel that's where it came from it was like a masculine thing whatever anyway (laughs) that may be a good way to start to just be like it's valuable to have these conversations with survivors uh, such as yourself because it's also painful for the quote oppressor and have you ever found yourself looking back where you would consider yourself to have been in the position of the oppressor when you were giving these scripts to other people i'm sure i did but you know like i i'm such an introvert and i didn't talk about my faith i didn't proselytize i didn't try to convert others i kind of just tried to lay low I played music a lot in church. I did worship. So I guess in that way, I kind of was like a de facto tacit <laughs> oppressor. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I played drums, so I was, I was in the back. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but no, I, I mean, I can see, I, I probably did some of that and, and, and gave my tacit approval of the church. Um, to which, I mean, it's one of those things like when you're born into it and that's all you know, it takes a lot of work and a lot of time and effort and perpetual existential crises to come out of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even if you're not on the front lines, like a Ray Comfort standing on a box yelling at people about bananas or whatever. Um, <laughs> if you haven't seen the, the video, go watch it. Um, <laughs> I'll link it below. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, the banana is proof that God exists, but whatever. Um, if you're, you, you don't have to be doing that to, all, to be the, like, the kind of oppressor. And so, yeah, there is, there is some of that that you kind of look back and you're like, ah, damn. You know, I, I didn't affirm the LGBTQ community because that's not how I was told sexuality was supposed to be. Did I go out and tell people about it? No. But internally, that's something I had to repent for. And I don't say it in the evangelical Christianese sense. I, I mean, in the Greek sense that I needed to change my thinking, change my mind. And it started with putting aside my theology, my doctrine, and just getting to know people. You know, I worked for a lesbian. She was doing the same stuff I was doing. I got to know her. You know, it's this whole like contact hypothesis. We change our way of thinking by actually befriending people without an agenda. Mm. So it took all that to really be like, oh, why do I, why do I think that it's, why should I be non-affirming? Because the Bible says, well, hold on, but I met these people and there's nothing wrong. <laughs> you know, what's, what's the big deal? Um, so then, then you, then you go back and start to reevaluate what you've been told. Well, when was I told this? I don't know. It's always been right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it takes a lot of work to dig back and be like, why would, why do I believe all these things that I believe? Because I was told when I was five, that's not a good reason. <laughs> right. Totally. But yeah, they are the most difficult things to unravel because they're so, intrinsically a part of who you are after having that pounded into you for decades and especially in the most formative moments of your life like childhood sure is there a particular moment where you began to have this reckoning with deconstruction was a particular issue how did it begin uh i wouldn't say there's like some sort of damascus road event although it probably makes for a better story it was um I mean, when I think about it, I've always been deconstructing. I just didn't know. So I was told about a literal devil, about a literal hell and all that stuff. And I was like, this doesn't make sense when I was six and seven. Why can't the devil ask for forgiveness and all this kind of stuff? Like, what's the <laughs> yeah. deal here? It's just scripted. <laughs> but then, you know, so you start to have these questions, but I think these are just like little seeds in the back of your mind that eventually come to fruition later in your 20s. You know, I, I always studied philosophy and critical thinking and I always was fascinated with the violence in the Bible, um, not only because it would make a cool action film, <laughs> but because I was, I was just so like dumbfounded how God could be depicted as so violent and people were okay with it. Or he could affirm slavery, like it's in the Bible, you, you can't deny it. And I would ask like, hey, what's the deal with this? well, you know, they treated their slaves well. And, and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> if that works for you, like whatever, that's your own, like you got to wrestle with that. That doesn't work for me. 
So I think all these questions piled up and then, you know, I, I stumbled upon like Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and all these atheist debaters and, and philosophers. And I'm like, oh, they keep winning these arguments. Like maybe God doesn't exist. And if mm. God does, maybe it's not even worth worshiping that God, because unless you want to like come up with this crazy apologetic, it, it's not a good God. It's morally reprehensible. It's, it's a monster God. And it wasn't just one of it was just a pile on and, and it was probably one of those things where it was like a straw that broke the proverbial camel's back like it was just i couldn't affirm those things anymore because they didn't resonate in my soul they weren't they weren't experiential i didn't experience that with people i didn't experience people who should go to hell forever or who shouldn't be raptured while i get raptured you know all that kind of stuff that i was told like i'm just not experiencing these things yeah. So, so what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I love what you said about getting to know people without an agenda. And I imagine that's really difficult for a lot of, I'm calling them pre-constructed Christians, <laughs> but pre-deconstructed Christians. Um, because we're always taught from, you know, if you're in church at a young age, you're taught from a young age that there always is an agenda. If you meet a gay person, your agenda is to get them saved so they can turn away from that evil lifestyle. So how do you even get rid of the weight and pressure of the agenda that you're given? Well, you could do what I have. You could do what I do and have social anxiety so you don't talk to people. <laughs> And you can be an introvert like me. If you're like a out there extrovert, I don't know how, because you're always wanting to talk to people. <laughs> you're like, play the drums, be in the background. Don't yep. talk to anybody and no one will exactly. ever dislike you. Okay, great. Yeah. That and, then you, and then you can ask all these questions in your quiet time when you're by yourself. And figure it out. <laughs> all right. Well, there's some advice for all the introverts. <laughs> I'm definitely an extrovert. So I absolutely said some crazy damaging things to friends at different points in my life. And I can feel sad for that. Like, for example, I was the one that organized the chastity ceremony at my church where we pledged our virginity and our father signed a contract. And I do have to own up for that reality. Yeah. Like I was the perpetuator of that in that moment. Yeah. yeah. Well, but I think I think you're doing it right though. Like you're vulnerable, you're out there and you're allowing your story and your life be a process, which can be hard and be difficult. And you're going to take a lot of flack and a lot of heat. And you're going to have to go back to those people and be like, Hey, I was so wrong about this and I'm sorry, mm. but there's power in that too. Like, I'm not saying go out and oppress people so that you can later <laughs> say, I'm sorry, but but there is real, I mean, if you're just a human being, you know, be a human being first and be like, hey, this is, this is what I used to say. I said this to you. I'm really sorry. If you're ever interested, like, I could tell you why I said that and maybe have that, if you have that relationship with someone. But I just, I mean, you're being real and you're going to take flack for it, but it's, all, it's also good too. Yeah, thank you. I've been saying forever that one the most profound thing I ever heard one pastor say, and I only heard one pastor say it. He said, I don't know anything. And it was so refreshing and beautiful. He was a guest pastor. I still wish to God that I knew his name or who he was because 
I was at a very heavy handed evangelical church at the time. And I remember looked at the leadership and I was like, oh, dang, did you just hear what that man said? Like, you guys would never say that. And mm-hmm. um, it was really eye opening. So you were saying that you have resonance with that exact same concept, this I don't know how you would phrase it, but I find a lot of freedom and a lot less pressure in the ability to say, I don't know. Yeah. So how do you feel about the unknown? I love the unknown. Yeah. I I had the opposite, like my pastoral staff. I remember one quote. It was, don't ever come up and tell us we did a good job in the sermon. Don't ever say it was a good sermon. It just is. And I was like, oh, you're the, like, like, like Sauron had a mouthpiece, the mouth of Sauron, like you're the mouth of God in this case. Like, like you don't get to have an opinion on whether something's good or bad. This is just is, this is like the word of God. Um, and mm-hmm. I find that to be so stifling and so, um, yeah, just not interesting, boring. Um, also arrogant. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. arrogant without yeah. realizing the arrogance of it. It's, it's, um. A strange phenomenon. I find beauty and freedom and joy in the uncertainty, in the mystery. You know, it's like um, Richard Rohr uses the analogy of an onion. The more layers you peel, the more you get down, but you more you keep peeling and peeling and peeling. And I just find fascination with the fact that it's okay. Oh, it's not only it's not only okay, but it's like celebrated that I don't know everything and I won't know everything. Mm-hmm. I think it's cool that I don't know what your experience is like because it it opens up an opportunity for empathy and compassion, which are just like <laughs> the the most basic ingredients for love and relationship like there is mystery in not knowing what your experience is like. There's mystery in not knowing what my spouse's experience is like, or my wife's there's and every human being's experience. And the fact that I can't know everything. I I mean, there's just so much freedom in that and shameless plug, but a book that I have coming out with um, Michelle Collins is, uh, is going to be called learning to float. And that's my deconstruction process. You don't go anywhere. You learn how to not, flounder in the ocean which Mm. is beautiful though i think it's beautiful that it's not you don't have to get anywhere you just have to learn to be cool with this moment right now which is all we have dang i really i love that just learn to float because something that i always harken back to is c.s lewis and screw tape letters my favorite thing in that book was when he was talking when screw tape is um I forget the names of the the demons, whatever. Screw tape is talking to the other demon and just says, like, basically the whole thing is demons giving each other advice on how to ruin this one man's life. So screw tape advises the demon to just keep this guy in the past because the past is just this thing that's not tangible, that is just a perception of what happened in your own opinion. And it can morph and change. Even when we look at, how uh, I like eyewitness testimony and trials is the least accurate testimony available because that's how warped and skewed our perception of an event can be. 
And the future, of course, doesn't exist at all in our mind's eyes. So we're just like perceiving what we want to happen or what we're afraid will happen. And the advice Screwtape gives is keep the person in one of those two places, the past or the future, because then they will never be present and God is in the present. Mm-hmm. And I love that so much. And that just reminds me of what you just said, like floating. So you don't have a predestination in your head where you must go or you have to achieve, which I find is so stressful for me as an achiever. I used to want to really know what was going to happen. And I used to rely so heavily on prophecy and talking to people and getting prophecy from them because I just needed to know my destination. And it's been wonderful to let that go in my adulthood and also allow God to shine in those. Because when you get rid of your own concept of your predestination with God, it allows for so much pleasure and gratitude and such an adventure, this grand adventure on your faith, because then God can always surprise you in the midst of it. And you, you don't set yourself up for disappointment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What else, what are some other concepts in that book? So please plug away. I would love <laughs> to hear more about it. Well, it was, it was one of those things where I didn't want to write like a memoir or anything like that, but I did want to tell Are my you judging people, me? <laughs> no, no. Do I'm you have a kidding. memoir coming out or something? Yes, I do. I already told yeah. you. <laughs> I know. And I loved the title of it, by the way. I thought it was brilliant. Little double entendre. Thank you. I, I love a good double entendre. Yes. As a hip hop head, I love a double entendre. Amen. <laughs> um, what was I saying? <laughs> um, no, so I, I, but I wanted to tell my deconstruction story in some way. And my friend, Michelle Collins, who is getting a, a doctorate in psychology, I thought it would be fun to almost um, do, it's not a counseling session. It's not um, in lieu of therapy. We, we disclaim that right at the start, but it's just sitting down with a friend who has that background to talk about this because her uh, part of her thesis is that the deconstruction process kind of matches the grief cycle mm. and her her first book uh into the gray covers that and so i thought it would be cool to to kind of it's like part here's my deconstruction and here's part like the psychology behind it and the cool thing about it is that there's no like crescendo of i've made it i've arrived it's not a how-to. It's not, here's the 12 steps of deconstruction. You're on step six, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's, it's like you get to the end and it's like, hey, surprise, we have no answers for you. Uh, <laughs> but, I was like, thanks for nothing. I want my $16 yes, back. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's just, yes, it's a big downer. No, actually, the, the, um, the answer is that there is no answer and we're all going to do it together. And Mm. I'm not going to tell you what it's going to be like. I'm going to say what it's like for me. You might have some experiences that are the same. You might have some that are different, but we're going to be able to give each other that look like, man, this sucks. I know how you feel. Mm. Let's, let's sit down and have a beer or whatever. Let's, let's sit and talk about it. And, and that's it. And so, but I think there's beauty in that. And I think that's supposed to be kind of what Christian community looks like. It's messy. It's vulnerable. There's no judgment. It, it, it's not point A to point Z. It's all over the map and that's okay. Yeah, I really love that. And obviously I completely agree. 
Is religious trauma a part of that book? Do you address that? Only briefly. Um, and I think Michelle maybe addresses it in her book, um, Religious Trauma Syndrome. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, it's actually, I learned more about it. It's not a syndrome. It's just religious trauma. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, I'm just asking because if you're saying that it, you know, you sort of compare it or liken it to the steps of grief. Mm. I feel like that was definitely a huge part of my experience. But what are some of the, the common elements of that path that you see people go down? Like, what are some of the steps, even if they're not purely defined? Uh, oh, of the deconstruction? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I don't know to the extent of which it's exactly like the grief cycle. And I know the grief cycle, you kind of hop around a lot. But I know a lot of people there is an element of denial. Mm. Like you, you want to sit here and say, I'm not seeing what I'm seeing. I'm not experiencing what I'm experiencing. If I just pray more, if I just read my Bible more, if I just do this more, if I go to more Bible studies, then all this is going to go away. Yeah. <laughs> all this mm -hmm. angst, all these questions are going to go away. Um, you start bargaining with God. You start bargaining with yourself, with the inner voices in your head. Um, and you get to a place where, at least for me, like I had, I had a lot of moments of anger. Anger was huge for me too at first. Yeah. Enormous. Yeah, because yeah. I, I saw rape culture was a huge part of what came up for me. Because I think that different people sort of have their Achilles heel just throughout life. And then when you have Christianity, which to me in the evangelical nature, it brings so much immediately like repression of those things, then it can really amplify and pervert the thing that you were already struggling with. So if you're struggling with like, if you're a, a financially motivated person or you're selfish in some way, maybe you'll go to a prosperity doctrine kind of church that's like affirming that and making it worse for you. Like, I think there's so many dangerous evangelical spaces that just like I said, worse in these issues that we already have. And for me, sex has always been such a giant fascination for me. So getting purity culture and all of that repression coming out of that and seeing what other women had been through, my more voluptuous friend was assaulted after having been told that her body was a stumbling block. So she never reported that crime, those sorts of things. Like that's when I think of righteous anger, like so many people that are not deconstructing or battling us on even the concept of it will, will just be mad at us and be like, well, you never read your Bible and you were never a Christian anyway. And I'm just like, or we have genuinely traumatic, really effed up experiences that we are privy to that we had to reckon with in this yeah. conversation. Yeah. You were saying, yeah. oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I just wrote something for Pathios the other day about like, like, look, I get your culture. Like a lot of times we get accused of like, well, if you, yeah, if you read your Bible more, if you do this, but it's like, I couldn't have done more. I spent 25 years in the world. Like I was there Sunday morning, setting up instruments and breaking them down and playing, breaking them down again and coming back Sunday afternoon for nights. Like all I did the whole nine yards. Like a lot of us did. So we get it. Like we've been there. So yeah you know, maybe come to the other side and then see how it is before you start <laughs> lashing out and accusing that we don't know what we're talking about. Totally. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So you were also saying too, before we started talking that sexuality for you was a part of your deconstruction. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's, it's uh, like I was telling you before we hit record and what we talk about in the book is that when you deconstruct, at least this is my experience and it's been a lot of other experiences uh, from people that I've met on social media and things. Um, you, you deconstruct like theological ideas. Oh, I don't know about hell anymore. Oh, I don't know if the Bible's inerrant anymore or this and that rapture. Um, and you don't think about the other, the other things of life, like what it means to be human, what it means to be a sexual human, all this and that. And that's one of those ones that pops up and you're like, okay, you don't believe this evangelical doctrine and this and this and this, and you keep going down this rabbit hole, which I think is a perfect analogy. And you get to, you get to be like, okay, well, what about sexuality? What about my sexuality? What about my spouse's sexuality? Because we got married before any of either of us deconstructed. We got married as good evangelical boys and girls, you know, like went to the pastor for premarital counseling, which was a joke. Um, <laughs> oh, wait, I want to, you can finish your thought, but I want all the details <laughs> about this. <laughs> Honestly, I don't even remember. I think I blocked it out. Um, <laughs> wait, can I ask, tell me if it's TMI, but did you both make it to the altar or did you have sex beforehand? Oh no, we were virgins. Oh, through and through. Did you kiss? Pat on the back. Wow, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> were you like 16? <laughs> no, tw uh, almost 22. Okay, yeah. I waited till I was 22 as well, but I didn't quite make it to the altar. Wow. Um, yeah, with pre like previous to this, if you haven't blocked too much of it out, did you did you both talk about these things? Did you have any difficulty with it leading up to your marriage? Or were you both kind of like hook, line, and sinker, we're doing this this way? I mean, we talked, I mean, we talked about it, we struggled. I mean, we made out and stuff and we, you know, it, it, we had those moments where it's like, oh, we're, we're getting up to that line of sin. Um, right, which for but, you was what? Like anything below the neck? <laughs> yeah, I think anything that got to like, um, I can never pronounce this word, ergonomic not not ergonomics it's like <laughs> erogenous, i don't think <laughs> erogenous zones any erogenous zone ergonomic zones okay yes. <laughs> that's a new one i love that <laughs> okay no erogenous zone well which is funny because as a sex educator then you realize that almost any I'm part of your name. body can be Anything. an erogenous yeah. zone or an ergonomic mm -hmm. zone or an ergonomic <laughs> zone depending on what you're talking about Okay, so sorry, I was just feeling nosy about that. So, but that's fascinating too, to know that you both went in with this mindset and then you end up deconstructing. Did you deconstruct yeah. together or were one of you kind of torturing the other one for a minute in that process? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I tortured my wife a little more um, because I kind of led the charge in terms of just like, Hey, I don't know if I believe any of this stuff anymore. And I was, I was not vocal about it at first, but once I started being like, I think I want to write, um, I, I got, I guess I got to get on social media and start sharing some thoughts. Hey, I'm going to write for these places. So I, you know, I got picked up as a contributor for a couple of places. I was like, well, I'm going to share my thoughts and see what happens. Um, that was really hard on family, especially mm. her family. Her, her, her grandfather was a pastor for like ever at our church. Um, their family was hardcore into the church and all that. Um, so Lindsay's husband's out there 
talking a lot of stuff now. Um, so, so that gets, that gets difficult. Did you uh, have it, your daughter yet or no? Um, yeah, she was super young though at the time. So well, this, yeah, because I imagine yeah. that would also like perpetuate fear in the people that are watching. Totally. Like, oh no, oh, now yeah. they're going to raise their daughter wrong. Yeah, they're going to yeah. raise her to affirm the gay community and they're going to do all this. They're not going to be leaving hell. They're not going to teach this. and They're going to force her to be trans. <laughs> right, probably. <laughs> God knows what they thought. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, it, but she, she processed through all of it and was like, you know, I've always felt that. I've mm. always felt it's wrong to not affirm gay people. I've always felt hell was wrong. I've never wanted to read my Bible. I always thought it was absurd. Um, and I was like, well, I still like it kind of, but, <laughs> but you, you do you, right? Yeah. Uh, so she was like right there with me, but obviously was not as vocal. Like she's a nurse. She doesn't like do this kind of stuff in, in the public eye in any sort of way. Um, but now it's funny because she's gone so far like to where it's like, I don't want anything to do with church, nothing. Like I don't, like I believe in God, but I am, I wouldn't consider myself a Christian. I'm, I, I don't even know if I do either. I just don't think about it. Uh, I don't think about that label, but I definitely like love studying Christian theology and all that kind of stuff. But um, I think we were close enough in our deconstruction to where it, it's not like some of these tragic stories you hear about. I've known some people who were deconstructing their spouse would be like quoting Jonathan Edwards at them. Like what? Like you're telling your wife that she's going to go burn in hell and all this kind of stuff. Like, and you guys like sleep in the same bed. You guys make breakfast in the morning together. I'm like, damn, that <laughs> that sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah. That's, I can imagine how difficult that would be because that's what coupledom, it always has its challenge of when someone is growing or if you're growing in the same direction or different directions and how you make amends with that, especially if you have a new child. I have an 11 month old now, so even while pregnant, even before then with the God is great channel and stuff, I have just been having a hard time not feeling that telling children about hell and eternal damnation is actually just abusive. Mm -hmm. I, I can't see it any other way. I cannot imagine looking at my son and saying, and for these, these minor things, like Harry Styles, like he is going to hell because he's wearing a dress. Like there's so many reasons that we tell our children they're going to go to hell and, and they're children and they're so malleable. But like, to your point too, I think it's interesting that you were hearkening back to moments in your childhood and remembering how you always had these theological issues, because that just reminds me of Jesus being like from the mouth of babes, like these children have real faith. You guys don't even know what you're doing. Look at the children. Go talk to my daughter. She's 10 and she will tell you like it is about the LGBTQ community. And she will, I, I don't have to say nothing. I just, <laughs> oh, what does she say? Uh, she's just very staunchly like, you know, if we go to like pass by a church, she'll be like, do they like the gay people or not? All this kind of stuff. And it's like, if they don't like she wants, she's like, I wish that church wasn't here and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, snap. Oh my you know? And she has, she has friends in her school. One friend that was like, you know, didn't like gay people. And she's like, I'm not going to be friends with her. I was like, well, I mean, cool. Like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you who to be friends with. Like, you know, maybe, you know, but yeah, I just think it's great. Like, it's mm -hmm. just natural. Like, it's totally natural that they can see without when they don't have like an agenda forced on them, they can see what's right and wrong kind of right in front of their eyes. Yeah. You know, like it's obvious. Mm -hmm. It's obvious until we warp them. Yeah.
absolutely. Yeah. Um, but can, can I go back to, um, you asked me earlier about um, sexuality and I wanted to make the point about sexuality, especially, you know, in Christian circles, that when you deconstruct, sexuality becomes one thing, especially for me and my, my wife, that you have to kind of then t talk about. You have to talk about, you have to work on um, working out of that purity culture that you do so much talking about. Mm -hmm. um, mostly as, as a woman, but men too, um, it, it definitely affects men in a negative way as well, though I wouldn't call it to the, to the, the, the degree, broadly speaking, it affects women. But this absurd notion that you could just turn it on when you get married, like you're supposed to do is, is well, like it's absurd. Um, so it has, it takes a lot of work and years of being vulnerable and honest and trusting your partner, um, to move forward in that, in that way as the sexual being without all of that religious dogma that was put on you. Mm -hmm. And so you get to a point where it's like, it's not even until our thirties where we started having like a healthy sexual relationship just by being honest, but just by, it takes that long to open up and break out of that culture. Yeah. Do you mind getting more specific? No, I don't mind at all. Cause I'm just curious, like I would take guesses of what the specific things are like this. I, I know again that, um, most of our kinks, the vast majority of them are developed before we're six years old. So anyone that blames themselves or says that it's wrong, it, it's very formative from childhood and it exists from a young age. And I also really come up against the word normal. <clears throat> For sure. example, like even the word kink has like, it's so salacious with connotation mm. when in reality, kinks are the most normal part of sexuality. Every single person has them. Like if someone has a foot fetish, you could think it's outlandish, but it's actually one of the most common fetishes. Mm -hmm. Fetish even too is a really salacious, unnecessarily salacious word, I think. Um, but is it that kind of things like your, your chemistry or your personal desires or what, what it's, were some I, of the things? Yeah, it's the whole nine yards. It's especially just opening up emotionally and just being present in the moment with someone else. And um, yeah, I'm like you. I'm like, fuck. No, I'm, can I say that? Oops. Yeah, no, uh, sure. <laughs> we allow normal. heathens on this show. Yeah, okay. Well, fuck normal. <laughs> like normal is just so absurd. Um, uh, so yeah. I, don't, I don't even know what people are talking about when they talk about that. But um, the big one for us was just just emotional connection and being present without like, Hey, this is for this. You're do, you're having sex for a, like a goal, and yes, orgasm is great, and that seems to be like a goal. But it's like maybe that's the wrong way of doing it. You know, maybe maybe that's kind of just beside the point, and that'll take care of itself. Obviously, the woman's role of uh, serving their man, like we're taught in the church, is completely horrible, and that that whole agenda needs needs to be burnt to the ground in the worst of ways or in the Amen. best ways I should say yeah um I honestly as a man I'm like so offended by that because like I cannot imagine being with someone who did that just for me like I would just be like so repulsed by that by like really like please don't do that for me that's absurd 
Mm. Um, so any man who takes, I know it's, I know it's kind of indoctrinated to men too, that that's your biblical duty or whatever, but I don't know. That just fires me up and to quote Peter Griffin, it grinds my gears. <laughs> uh. Yeah. I mean, it's truly terrible. I, I think most of the men I talk to, they are stressed out by needing to always be the, maybe aggressor is the wrong word, but the, mm -hmm. um, the instigator. I'm like yeah. losing the word right now. You always have to be yeah. initiator. That's initiator. what I'm looking for. Yeah. yeah. You're the one initiating. And then I've also talked to men that have a really, um, unhealthy dose of the, uh, the Madonna whore complex, because that is basically this idea that your wife is this pure Madonna, especially if she's quote, saved herself from marriage. And then there's the whore that does the other things that you couldn't do with your wife. And I've talked to women who wish their husband would treat them as both. They're like, I want to be the whore too. I don't always want to be this like little porcelain teacup on the shelf. And then at the same time, I've talked to men who were like, turned off when their wife would come on to them because that's not her duty. It, it made her seem more like a whore than their wife. And there's all these complex, stupid scripts that we've been given that really do warp a couple's sexuality. Yeah. And they're so subconscious that we don't even realize how embedded they are unless we do the work. Mm. Because yeah. this whole notion of like, like my my what i do remember from my premarital and i'll put it in air quotes counseling okay from, from you're my, really mad about this i want to know well I, I i've done social work for a long time like if you're a counselor you're an lcsw or an mft or something like that the fact that we call pastor pastoral staff talking about their ideas about sex counseling i think is um that's criminal yeah, with uh, no certification, no, so they yeah, don't exactly. have to adhere to any specific guidelines. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's like the, it's like these um, uh, it's like these Christian camps that people get sent to, like where it's supposed to be drug and alcohol camp or it's uh, pray the gay away camp or something. It's like I I've been in this world of social work for a long time. Like this is my field, <laughs> not my mm. field, but I'm in this field. Like. I have a very strong disdain for anyone who steps into that without the right um, training and background and knowledge. So Me too. Um, the, uh, the thing I do remember about the counseling was it was, it was basically like, once you get married, you just turn it on. You just, you just step into that world now and everything's on the table, but it, it's just so impractical and, and it doesn't work because, and if they had training, they'd know this, of the deep psychological impact that has been driven into us as churched folks for 20 years, 30 years, however long, that you, you, there is so much work to do there that they don't even know. Like one of my favorite Jesus phrases is forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. like, they do not know what they're doing in that moment. Yeah. And also you realize that your body holds these messages for you and it's not necessarily your choice. Men can experience erectile dysfunction. Women can experience vaginismus where your body will literally not allow sex to happen. Yep. And the thing that blows my mind, and I've said this before, is that these quote counselors will counsel pre-married couples 
And then they'll simultaneously counsel married couples that are in full dysfunction from what they told them before they got married. And I'm like, how do you not have cognitive dissonance here? How are you not seeing the result of what you said is producing this dysfunction? And the fact that that bridge is not made drives me up a wall. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. It's one of my pet peeves. I'm I'm right there with you. Yeah. Well, we're sort of rounding towards the end. I would love to hear just maybe any, not even closing thoughts, but any last subject you might want to touch on, whether it be your book or your deconstruction process or anything that gets your heart pumping. Well, I just, I just want to encourage people that, that, that are, are deconstructing or people who have lost their faith, even that, or are concerned about where their faith is going, that it's going to be okay. And what, what our focus should be on, and whether we're thinking about the future or ruminating on the past, be present with it. The only thing, this heaven and hell dichotomy, this what happens when we die, uh, fixation, escapist mentality, is it's detrimental to our, our life now. Because what a joke my daughter always, she thinks it's funny, but I think she's a little more woke than she knows. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> she's been reading Richard Rohr or something. Wow. Um, she, she likes to joke around about, about the, the concept of now. And she says, it's, ne- it's never not now, dad. You know, it's, it's now right now. And as I'm saying this, it's now. So again, like out of, out of the mouths of children, like she gets it and it, it pisses me off because it took me 35 years to get that. <laughs> And she's 10. So I'm, I'm totally jealous. Um, but it's, it's spot on. It's spot on. Like we have right now. And so like, I have been studying a lot of Buddhism and meditation and, and all that kind of stuff. And because that is practical. And I know Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being here and now and within and in our midst and all that. It's totally practical with how we live now. Um, but it's okay to go outside of Christianity or the boxes of what we think Christianity is and whatever helps us be a more present, more empathetic, more compassionate human being, then that's the direction we go. And I'm of the belief that there is, there's no good knowledge that is not experiential. So we can talk about all these theories and ideas all we want. But unless we've experienced something, I don't know if it's worth much of a damn. It's, it's, like, it's like reading a manual on how to ride a bike. Unless, but unless you ride the bike, you can't say, I know how to ride a bike. So we got to experience things in life and experience them without agenda as much as possible. I love it. What you're saying right now, the verse Matthew 10, 39 just came to me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That just popped into my head because I'm just thinking about how genuinely scary a deconstruction process is. For me, I called it my prodigal son journey because I didn't have the language of deconstruction. And I did feel exactly that way. I felt like I'm about to lose everything that I've been clinging on to because there's something about it that just doesn't feel right. At the same time, having been taught that my heart is deceitful and my flesh is evil and I can't trust myself. So you sort of have to climb over so many mountains of fear to even be, begin the deconstruction process. 
but for me, Matthew 10, 39 really sums it up because a lot of us, I feel, have to be prepared to lose everything as we know it in order to find what it is we're actually looking for. And my prayer was always that, that God would be beside me, that he would never abandon me, which is biblically sound too. Like that verse, neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons. Like that is one of my favorite verses of all time. You cannot be separated from the love of God. So I just want to acknowledge how scary it can be. And what you're saying is, is deeply challenging for people because what you're asking them to do is come to terms with that fear and just look at the face of fear and be like, all right, well, I'm going to do this anyway. How did you find the courage to do it? Did you ever actually feel very scared that you would lose your faith forever? Oh yeah. And I, and I did, I, I straddled that agnostic atheist fence for a while. Um, but yeah, it, it's just, I said something to a friend, Michelle, who I wrote that book with that there, there's no way out. The only way out is just to keep going through it. It's just mm. the only way out is through it. And it's terrifying. It's totally yeah. terrifying. Um, it, it takes a level of, of, um, I guess, courage to, to go through that. But I think understanding that you're not alone is huge. It's huge. You don't know where you're going, but the fact that there are other people not knowing where they're going also is, is super beneficial. It's super, it's, it's life. It's salvific. If you want to use Christian terms, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's really great to have all these resources too. I'm glad you've done all the writing that you've done. I'm sure it all exists someplace too. You ever look back at your old work with publications and see kind of the deconstruction process? Like, is there writing out there that really shows that? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you t- if you look at my first book, All Set Free, and you look at my latest books, um, it's not that I necessarily completely disagree with everything. I'm just no longer there. So I think something that's terrifying for for to be a writer is that you're almost, especially if you're going to do it vulnerably, uh, you're almost taking like your entire library almost becomes a journal unless you're doing like academic writing very specific niche writing um if you're doing more conversational writing like i do it's almost saying like here's my journal like (laughs) be kind (laughs) yeah Um, you know so it's it you do see that process or you listen to like heretic happy hour early episodes and that's only three years ago um or, or interviews. I, I don't like sit there and listen to my own interviews from like four or five years ago, but I know for a fact that I at least would cringe twice. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I would probably be the same way. I wanted to address that element of fear because I had a really beautiful Buddhist awakening while I was in the midst of my divorce. And a Buddhist friend of mine gave me a book uh, from a monk whose name I can't remember about mourning. And the beauty of mourning, as in weeping and like going through a process. And I just realized that in evangelicalism, that you always had to be so happy all the time. I don't remember feeling truly vulnerable because even if I was going through something really confusing, I couldn't actually raise my hand and say, hey, this is what's happening. Because I already knew they would have the answer and then it wouldn't Hmm. satiate me because it was the problem that I was having. Yeah. So 
when my friend gave me that book, I was like, oh my gosh, this now reminds me of Song of Songs. There is a season for everything. There's a time for mourning. And this book was the first thing that actually gave me permission to not wallow in that, but to actually experience it, which is what the book said, like your daughter says, to live in the now, to be present, to address what's happening in your body. When I read Jamie Lee Finch's book, You Are Your Own, it made me realize that your body keeps account of things that has happened to it. And you actually have to process those things to get over them versus pray it away, stifle it down. Like right. God is bigger than this. So what are some other just Buddhist things? Obviously meditation you mentioned. What are some other concepts that you see that you can easily integrate into Christianity? Uh, the one I, I love, and I think it's a, the difference between like um, Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism. I, I see no difference between the way of Jesus and the way of the Bodhisattva um, that it's not, it's not about my own enlightenment. It's about the enlightenment of everyone. And I, I'll, I'll step into that last. I love that. I think it's, it's like, wow, this is Paul. This is Jesus. This is good Paul. Not, not, the, <laughs> not murderous Paul. Yeah. <laughs> not, the, not the other stuff. Um, a side note, I think Paul gets a bad rap, but that's a topic for another day. Maybe. Oh, me too. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I love the Buddhist writers and even Richard Rohr, the Franciscan talks about this is that the ego is neither good nor bad. The ego just is in its proper place. The ego is allows us to talk it. I have to have an ego. You have to have an ego for us to have a conversation. The problem is not, we don't, I don't think we need to kill the ego. And some Buddhists would, would suggest that the, the ego needs to die. I take the, the approach and and like alan watts i believe does as well um that the ego just needs to be in its proper place which the ego doesn't like so i think we get too dualistic if we're like the ego's bad we need to get rid of it and 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 this and that and and i like the approach of of having the ego in its place because that then it's more unified it's it's less dual thinking it's less bad and good I think we need to get out of this notion of good and bad and categorizing mm-hmm. things in binary ways. Um, very little in the world is binary. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Including Trust. gender and sexuality. <clears throat> yep. We are aligned. I completely yeah. agree. And just to clarify, ego is not the term as we might understand it so easily. It's not someone that's all like hyped on themselves. Right. Like, the, right. In the Buddhist, like how would Buddhists actually define the ego or how would you put a definition to it as you're describing it? Oh, I, 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 I hesitate because it's not going to be not, it's not going to be a monolith and not just like Christianity, not all Buddhists think alike. I, I'm just talking in terms of like the concept of I. Like, yeah. So kind of I. like your humanity, like yeah, my, who my you per- are on this earth. Yeah, my personality, my my likes, my dislikes, um, the things I gravitate towards, my skill set, um, all those are great, but they can get, I think they, they're needed, but they can get in the way of who we truly are, which I believe is um, we are made in the image and likeness of God. We are divine in nature and we are, we are pure consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Interesting. 
Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. This is also interesting. And, and I, like, like that pastor, I don't know anything. I mean, honestly, like, <laughs> it's all speculative. Yeah. Throughout this whole interview, it's been meaningless. <laughs> yeah. Let's just be nihilist. <laughs> yeah. No, I really appreciate this conversation. And I thank you for uh, coming to the table with me because, again, like I said at the top of this conversation, I think when the male ego is put into check and is no longer given all of these scripts, again, me having a son, I fully intend to not raise him with any of these scripts. I'm not going to tell him he can't have a Barbie doll or he has to have a train or he can't wear, you know, like I think these things are so meaningless when Christians put them on such a pedestal. Every time I see Christians putting these very human systems on a pedestal, it so easily becomes idol worship to me. What are you guys idolizing the concept of gender? You're idolizing sexual purity. You're idolizing, you're idolizing politicians, like stop, let all of that die. And like you're saying, go into that gray space, that unknown. And then what's the name of your book again? Oh, the, the new book, which will be out in 2021 is learning to float. Yeah. Learn to float. Yeah. I love it. So when, how can, can people pre-order that or anything? They can't yet because it's still being edited, but oh. um, yeah, it'll be on, I, I have a website, allsetfree.com. And as soon as they can, it'll be up there. Okay. But I don't know when, but all yeah. my other books are on there. All the links to podcasts are on there. Um, I, I write for Patheos. So if, uh, if you want a link in the show notes, that would be cool. Yes, I will do all of that. Don't worry. Yeah. So I will put all of the pertinent materials in the bio so you can easily find Matthew and everything that he's working on, including all of his work with Patheos. And um, that's it. We love you all so much. God bless.